Good morning, and welcome to episode 659 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Howdy. And today we are joined by the co-authors of a new book. It's called In Pursuit of Penance. They are Mark Armour and Daniel Levitt. They also wrote Paths to Glory, which some of you have read, I hope. It came out in 2003, right? The same time as Moneyball, basically. And it's a it's a history book, but it's also very statistically inclined. You will find tables of wins above replacement player in a book that was out before those things were nearly as mainstream as they were today. There is one copy of that book in stock on Amazon right now. It can be yours. But we're going to talk mostly about the new book, In Pursuit of Penance, which is uh, along the same lines, both books that are very concerned with team building and front offices and what makes teams work and what are winning strategies and losing strategies. So hello, guys. Hey, Mark and Daniel. Glad to be here. That's Nice to be here. Yeah, so uh, you guys, in leading up to the release of the book, you blogged at the book site, pursuitofpenance.wordpress.com, and you ranked the 25 best GMs of all time. And I wonder how you found the era adjustments to be as you were as you were doing that, because Sam and I <laughs> talk often about what a great player of the past would do if you just plopped him down into today's baseball with no preparation or if you gave him time to prepare would he be competitive would he still be a star how does that work with with gms did you try to you know project them into the future or did you just say relative to their peers we did a little bit relative to their peers i think george weiss is a good example weiss was the as you know the general manager of the yankees uh, late 40s through 1960 and we ranked him number five and he theoretically could have been a lot higher given that he basically won a pennant every year except for a couple in there and um mainly we didn't rank him higher was because we felt the american league in the 50s was probably as weak as any league at any time you had several teams that were were completely underfinanced, undercapitalized. Uh, you had teams like the Tigers that may have had some money but hadn't really been successful. And so we we did look at the competition a little bit. So we did try and adjust a little bit, but it was much more subjective. We didn't really have any formulas for how to project a general manager from one era into another. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll also add um, that I think that this, although this is unprovable, I think Dan and I both believe that the GMs of today, <clears throat> in general, are just much better. I mean, the b- baseball operations is much more important, much more sophisticated. I think that if you're a, per- a fan of a team and you're complaining about the, your, your GM, like most people are, you're pr- you probably have one of the best GMs your team has ever had. And... Um, I think it's just a job that people take much more seriously than they used to. I think that the GM used to often be a friend of the owner or maybe a relative of the owner. Um, and back when Weiss was the GM, I think that the Yankees took it seriously and a lot of other teams really didn't. And I think today it is an immensely important job. It's maybe the most important job in the whole organization. And you know these guys are 
generally well-trained, really smart, have huge staffs working for them. It's kind of a different world. Yeah, you. Uh, it does seem like you run into a lot of children of people who have already been mentioned in this book, in this book. Like you're reading about a guy and then four chapters later you see his child is uh, in a position too. And and you're right, it's not just that the GMs are more professional, but like the staffs that they have are incredibly more professional. I mean, it used to be, what, about six guys in baseball ops and they were mostly, you know, pals. And now there's, what, thir- about 35 on a on a baseball ops masthead? Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, probably in the 50s, it was, you know, a handful, four or five. And and that did, probably was true even up until the 70s. And now, I think, especially in the last 15 years, I think things have, have really, really exploded. Mm-hmm. So so what is the, uh, I guess, the equivalent to that question that we have batted around on the show before about whether a player from the past would be able to compete? If you gave the average GM of you know, pick your number of decades ago, today's baseball operations support staff, could he be a modern GM or just intellectually and, you know, educationally, were those guys just no match for for today's crop? You know, to some degree, the job has just changed so much, it's almost impossible to to answer that. I mean, a guy like Joe Brown of the Pirates or Jim Campbell of the Tigers in the 60s effectively ran the entire organization, both the front and the back office. And, you know, you didn't have this to where you have today where you really have a team president that acts as the CEO and the GM is really more of just a pure baseball operations guy. So the job has really changed. That being said, I think some of the, you know, the smartest guys from the past would have would have done well today. Uh, as Mark was saying, I think that the organizations that, that really fell behind were ones where the GM was not really a serious hire. It was a friend of the owner. It was a, an ex-player that the owner felt like he wanted to have in there. But that there were a number of good GMs from the past who would probably succeed just fine and may actually, because of a little bit broader perspective, offer a little different picture. But again, a guy like Jim Campbell from the Tigers may be more comparable to Actually, you know, like a team president today as opposed to the actual guy running baseball ops. Yeah, a guy like a guy like Bob Hausen, who is kind of one of the stars of our book, he, he ran the Reds um, for many years and built the big red machine. One of the things that he was he did, I mean, this is he, he was the GM at a time when um, there was no free agency and there was a draft. So. So he, he was somewhat limited in what he could do compared to today. You, you, there was no real quick fixes. And he basically built the team by being a great trader. He was kind of like the the GM, sort of when you romanticize about being a GM when you're a kid, you think about out, out sort of fleecing all your, all your friends by making better trades. And that's kind of what he did. And he was just smarter than everyone else. He just, he just understood player value. Better than other people did, or 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 when I say he, I mean he and this and his staff of experts. And I think today that would be much harder because I think that the the median GM is just much smarter than than he used to be. I think it's 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 very difficult to just make a series of trades and make your team a lot better. When I say a series of trades, I'm talking about trades where money is not a key factor. You're just saying I'll trade my third baseman for your shortstop, and I and Housing just won all of those trades. And, you know, and another example of that is a guy like Cedric Tallis, who 
um, built the built the expansion Royals again. That era, you you really couldn't. You were limited in terms of being able to sign amateurs uh, like pre the draft area or or sign major league veterans after free agency. And he he did a number of trades they to build the team. A um, bunch of great trades. Amos Otis they they got famously uh, for Joe Foy, and basically the Mets were trying to turn Otis into a third baseman because that's what they wanted. And, you know, Talis and his staff recognized that um, there was an opportunity here. He, they were looking for players that other teams undervalued. And again, today, I think it's much harder to find those guys. And you look at a guy like Talis, too, and he just had a great staff. Um, he had four future general managers with him. He had John Sherholtz there, who was just a young guy, but he had Lou Gorman and Herc Robinson and Sid Thrift. So some of these guys just really built great staffs and those guys would probably be successful in any era. So you alluded to that era where there was uh, just after the draft began in the mid 60s, but before free agency uh, began in the late 70s. And uh, it was uh, it's it, it was sort of interesting to read about it and see how different it is, uh, because like you say, there wasn't really a place for, you know, the Yankees or the Dodgers to flex their muscle. You couldn't go out and sign all the best amateurs anymore. And, and the poor teams weren't yet uh, shedding all their good players. Um, and uh, so it makes for a, a, a very interesting little decade of, of history in assessing these front offices. Uh, do you do you have a favorite decade or, or era of history as far as where you think the strategy and the gamesmanship and the intrigue within the job kind of presents the richest uh, experience of assessing front offices? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, it's I think that the era you just talked about is is a really, you know, certainly a favorite. I mean, I was a kid then, so maybe that's part of it. But, um, uh, you know, that's a pretty good era. I think the the era, you know, the era that you're in is always sort of a difficult thing to judge. But it seems to me in the last dozen years or so, one of the things that's sort of happening is that the the rules are changing a lot. I mean, the draft rules have, have changed a lot in the last few years. Certainly the rules in – um, in, in terms of, or the opportunities in, in other countries has certainly changed a lot recently. Um, the international, um, spending limits have changed a lot recently. They may, they may add an international draft. I think that this is an interesting era because for a lot of the teams, and this is especially true probably of the big, the, the, the teams with big pockets, um, they just have to be prepared for, the game to change right out from under them. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to watch some of the teams adjust to that, especially the teams like the Red Sox and, and the Dodgers and the Cubs, the teams that have the money. Well, and as we talk about in the book, I mean, the, the, the context of these rule changes, whether it's the free agency of the draft or the smaller ones today, just of, you know, limiting the total money amount of money you can spend on the draft and the comp- compensatory draft picks being much harder to get for losing free agents and how that's causing teams to have to change their strategies just to adapt to that. So, you know, I think where there's changing rules and teams have to adapt to it and how they how different teams adapt differently um, is is what makes various very, you know, things interesting. I, I think that the Late 70s and early 80s is interesting, just as different teams reacted differently to free agency. Uh, and then the whole uh, influx of, 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 you know, Latin American players, especially sort of from the Dominican Republic in the late 70s and early 80s, and how some teams understood the value of that and other teams were much slower. 
An era I liked was sort of the uh, the, the Branch Rickey era. Uh, well, I guess that was a long era, but like in the 30s and, and, and even before, where there just seems to be this undercurrent of uh, part of strategy is, is cheating or is getting away with things that are questionable. <laughs> and like, so there's all these instances where like Branch Rickey has, uh, has reached a secret agreement with another club where like they will be able to reacquire a player at a later date or the club promises or Ricky promises that he won't take a guy in the rule five draft, but then he takes him anyway. And, and it, you know, kind of got me thinking about, you know, current analogs like, uh, with service time uh, manipulation and things like that, where it's like, you know, borderline unethical, but it's part of winning the game. So is there this, uh, would you say that there's a, uh, a constant in being a uh, front office person is sort of skirting the lines of uh, ethics and, and legality? Uh, or are there particular uh, eras, particular front offices who were sort of most, I don't know, I, I guess I want to say most able to take advantage of, but maybe a better way of saying is, is a skill of a GM being willing to do what the other guy as uh, conscience won't. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I think the teams, I think today, the things that a lot of teams do, and and I especially look at teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, the teams that have money, clearly the the rules that have been put in place in the past decade or so, which have been, um, you know, either to have, you know, slotted draft picks and, and I'm thinking especially of the international um, measures they've put in place now to sort of stop these teams. It seems like they always figure out a way to, to spend their money, right? Um, that, you know, you, you can say, well, if you go over this amount of money in year one, then you can't spend anything in year two. And then the teams figure, okay, well, we're already over. We might as well just spend, you know, a bazillion dollars this year. And I think that... Um, teams, I think that eventually they're just, they, it's like the, the major league sort of hierarchy is trying to plug all the holes in, in these, in these rules to, to, to keep the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Dodgers and other teams from having anywhere to spend their advantage. Um, and they're going to keep finding more holes. And I think that the, they're going to keep plugging them behind, behind them. That's what I expect is going to happen. But I, but I think, what you say about Ricky is true. I think most people think most people know that Ricky invented the farm system or created the farm system, whatever. But what a lot of people don't know is that the farm system that he created was essentially illegal at the time, and that a lot of what he had to do was keep sort of pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope, as well as lobbying for rule changes to make some of this stuff um, more allowed. I mean, certainly, I think one tries to uh, take advantage of the rules as they are, um, but I, I don't think that we have found that one needed to sort of go over the line in order to be successful. I mean, Jacob Rupert, from the Yankee owner, uh, who had Ed Barrows as GM for many years, I mean, they they lobbied hard to change the farm system rules, and once the rules were were changed, they went out and built the best farm system out there. So I, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> It's hard to know, but I think clearly one needs to look for to to try and take advantage of the rules as well as one can. So you date the birth of the modern general manager or something resembling the modern general manager to about a century ago. You point out that the first person to hold the actual title was not until 1927, but the role was sort of standardized before then. So how has the shelf life of a competitive advantage changed 
since the birth of the modern GM. I mean, obviously, people have always floated from one team to another, and so, you know, ideas spread that way. But how much longer or shorter, how how long could an advantage last at, at that time compared to now? I think that it, the shelf life's gotten shorter, but part of that is just because the, the economics between the teams, I think, other than sort of maybe a brief period there in the, in, in the 90s, has gotten much tighter. I mean, in the 30s, when the Yankees did their farm system, there was no way that a guy like Clark Griffith in Washington uh, could build a farm system to the same level as the Yankees simply due to the amount of money that the Yankees could spend on on buying these teams. And then they hired the best scouts. They could pay, you know, they could go out and pay more for amateur talent. So, I mean, the Yankee advantage because of their their scouts and their farm system lasted for something like 20 years. Um, you know, just sort of as another one we talk about very briefly in the book is, is the stadium boom where, you know, you had teams like Baltimore and Cleveland that gained this sort of five-year advantage, being the first ones to build the new stadiums. They actually were, you know, on the top, the two of them were in the top three in revenue for much of the 90s and in payroll. So they had that short window, then everyone else built a new stadium. So it's, you know, part of it depends on what the advantage actually is. But I, I do think the shelf life has gotten much, much shorter. Yeah, I mean, one of the, so maybe, maybe the biggest advantage ever that anyone ever gained, um, if it wasn't the farm system, it was integration. And I think that it is, you know, the, the lengths that teams will go to now to find players is sort of extraordinary compared to what it used to be, um, that it wasn't that long ago. It was, you know, 80 years ago that teams were really just driving around in station wagons and finding a bunch of white guys, and that was really... You know, that was basically all of the major leagues, and now they're going to Curacao to find um, Xander Bogarts and spending a lot of money to do it. I don't think it's likely that there's ever going to be another advantage to that level. That suddenly you're going to find, you know, unless they start playing in baseball in China and somebody could get there first and open up a camp. I suppose that would that be could be a big advantage, but. Um, yeah, it's hard to imagine. I, I guess I guess if somebody just discovered a cure for uh, for elbow injuries or something, maybe that would that would be a big thing. But mm-hmm. the secret would get out, I guess. Yeah, it does. It seems like the secret to most of these teams, though, is really general competence. I mean, there is the, there is more than anything. It just seems like you cannot undervalue competent people because uh, they all have you know they all have a plan. They all have baseball knowledge. Uh, they all have an incentive to win. And the ones who you know have good people around and a process that is solid and uh, people who do their jobs well and aren't, um, you know, actively screwing things up seem to be the ones that do well. It, much more than a secret, it, it just seems like there's sort of a Procter and Gamble uh, mentality that succeeds well in baseball throughout the years. You know, one of the things we like to talk about is what I'll call a way, you know, really started by Branch Rickey and the Cardinal way where you standardize everything throughout the organization and you make sure you have competent trainers and coaches and managers throughout the organization. And you look at the teams that are doing that today. Bill Newcomb, who was the managing general partner of the Giants, really started, you know, got trying to get back to the Giants way. And um, and, and Brian Sabian did it, did a great job sort of jumping on that. And, you know, the Cardinal way today with sort of their, their the way they're bringing their young pitchers through the system from the lower minors all the way through. So I, I agree. I, I, exa- I, I agree with that. And to the degree you sort of create a whole organizational structure of 
of competence all the way down and you standardize things. And, and of course, there was, you know, the Dodge way and the Oriole way. Uh, and, and so I, I think there's something to be said for, for, for creating that kind of a, of a cohesive environment. Pat Stigori was very explicitly about how great teams were built and In Pursuit of Penance is more about how they were built than how they <laughs> fell apart. It's probably better better reading, less depressing reading to read about teams on the upswing than on the downswing. But I am almost more interested in the dissolution of great teams than I am in how they were built because, as you point out, there are certain patterns and principles and it seems like these smart teams are actually smart and they have figured it out to a certain extent and they are doing things that lead to success, but inevitably it ends. So what kills good baseball teams? Well, I think that you're, the thing I was going to add to your last point, um, to your, to your, to your thing you were talking about last, I think is very applicable to this, which is um, that I think that you said that um, um, that having competent you know, people and, and just, you know, having intellectual know-how is, is sort of the key. And, and I agree. And, and, and I think one of the, the ways that comes through is, is a team that's sort of willing to adjust to new facts on the ground. And whether that could be some, you know, either rule change or, or, or whatnot, it changing in the game, but also changing information about the organization that you have. There's obviously a lot of luck in the game. I mean, you, you think you can, um, you know, build, build this great team, but if, you know, the people get hurt, people don't develop the way you thought, even though through no fault of your own, it just didn't work out. And you need to sort of be smart enough to figure that out, to see what's, what is not what's going to happen, but what is actually happening. And I think it's, you know, I think most people, that have studied a team like the Phillies have said, Hey, they, they are falling apart and maybe they should have seen this coming. It was, it wasn't really that the people that are observing the Phillies are, don't seem to be as surprised as the Phillies themselves that this happened. Um, and I think that they didn't adjust to what was happening in front of their eyes. They didn't, I mean, I think maybe they, the, the Howard contract was, was bad. And I think people knew it was bad, but I don't think anyone really thought it was going to be this bad. Like, I don't think people thought he was going to be a below replacement player, you know, two years into the deal. So some of that is just really bad luck, but you have to just sort of adjust to that. And I, I compare that to a team like the Red Sox who seem to the last couple of cycles has seen what's happened in front of them and have, and have been willing to blow it up pretty quickly and in such a way that they don't have a lot of dead money. I would just add one thing that I, I think, too, I mean, just sort of the natural order of things in the sense that, you know, if you're on top, you're getting lower draft picks. People are picking off all of your best, uh, you know, assistant GMs and, and farm directors. So there's sort of a once you're on top, A, a you're drafting lower, but B, you're kind of a target for uh, people looking to restaff their own organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, that's something that we've talked about this winter with Andrew Friedman leaving the Rays, for instance, we've wondered how much will that hurt the Rays or, you know, is the fact that the rest of the front office has been working with Friedman for years now and is is still the same group that put those teams together, you know, did whatever principles Friedman 
instituted in, in this organization, do they just carry over to the next group? And it seems like in your book, there are teams where that is true. You devote a whole chapter to the Dodgers who went from Larry McPhail to Branch Rickey to, you know, Bavese, and it was just decades of smart GMs who, to a certain extent, passed the baton to each other. But then in other places, you know, the, the one GM leaves and it's it's done. It's over. So I, I don't know whether that is, whether, you know, tutoring the next generation or the replacement is maybe an underrated aspect of general managers. Yeah, it's especially interesting now because I think because I think when when Friedman was running the Rays, you know, he had much more so than say Branch Rickey. Friedman had lots of, you know, high-level executives working for him because it was a much more of an organization. It's much more like a a business, you know, when you lose the CEO of the businesses, probably there's people that have been there for, you know, a decade or more that are just have been in every single meeting that he's been in and whether or not they can replace him or not, I don't know, but at least, at least he looks like Andrew Friedman. He he has the same, he talks the same way. So uh, I think it's more likely that that could happen. I think it's possible also that Friedman, you know, saw that they didn't have, have nearly as much talent as they had five years ago as well. Well, I think also part of the job inflation of GM now being president of baseball operations is, is a way to try and, you know, keep the up and, you know, the, the good, uh, the good lieutenants, right? I mean, Brian Sabian gets permitted to what executive vice president so that, uh, you know, Evans can be GM in San Francisco. So I think that that's another way that uh, people are trying to uh, deal with it. So, uh, you talk about. Um, the transition in ownership of the Yankees from CBS to George Steinbrenner. And uh, there was a quote, I guess, from a Yankee spokesman, no, a CBS spokesman at the time, who said, we came to the realization, I think, that sports franchises really flourish better with people owning them rather than corporations. And uh, Ben and I have pretty much uh, given our opinion about almost everything you can possibly have an opinion about on this podcast. But I think we're both kind of still in the dark about what makes a good owner. It's not something that I've seen a lot of work on or that Ben and I have put a lot of work into. And, and I always do sort of wonder which owners are good owners and what do they do that makes them good owners. So now that teams are worth like, you know, infinitely more almost than they were back then, is the people better than corporations uh, rule of thumb still true, do you think? And, uh, and, and more generally, or I guess maybe more specifically, what makes a good owner in this day and age? Well, I think that most owners are corporations now. I would just say that I think that what makes a great owner has, if, if there is one thing that has not changed very much at all, I, you know, we, we talk a lot in the book about Jacob Rupert who owned the Yankees from 1915 to 1939. And he, he did a couple of things. One is he, he made sure he picked the best guys. I mean, I think the first thing is you want to get, you want to pick a great GM. Um, he picked, he picked, Barrow, he then picked Weiss. He was part of when they picked both, you know, Hall of Fame managers, Miller Huggins and Joe McCarthy. And I think the other thing that he did is he let them do their job, but he never relaxed his pressure on them. I mean, they knew they had to win. He was clear that he would support them um, both monetarily and, you know, at league meetings. He let them know that they had to win. So I, I think it's picking the right people. And staying involved, but staying involved at sort of just the right level and knowing how to support the team. And I, I don't think that's really 
I, I don't think that's really changed much. I think that's the same thing a guy like, uh, you know, Bill Newcomb was doing in San Francisco, um, you know, or Bill DeWitt's doing in St. Louis. Yeah, I, I think De, I think DeWitt's like the perfect – he strikes me as like the perfect owner. He's he's uh, He seems to be pretty involved, but – I think he lets his guys do the do the job. I think that he's involved in the sense that he wants to make sure that there's a cohesive strategy, and as long as everybody's sort of you know on the same page, um, he doesn't really he he got rid of um, Jockety several years ago, and the main reason was just that Jockety wasn't didn't seem to be on board with the strategy that he wanted everybody to employ. But for the most part, there's just no drama with the Cardinals. I mean, you never hear anything about any sort of infighting. Like they, they all seem to be on the same page and there's, um, and I think that's, that's to do it's, uh, that's very much like Rupert was. You never really hear it any intrigue or gossip or drama with the Yankees the whole time he was there. And I think that's, I, that could be, you know, I think if I was, if I was a Cardinal fan, uh, I'd be pretty happy with my owner. Lastly, what do you think uh, front office personnel are worth, or what would what would you pay your front office people? Because there's been some suggestion that maybe front office people are drastically underpaid if you think that they are responsible for some number of wins above replacement front office per year. And given what teams pay for for wins these days, maybe there is some advantage to be had by the team that is willing to just spend a, a, a much larger percentage of its annual outlay on getting the, the brightest people in, in their baseball operations department. Do you think that's true? Or is the fact that, as you wrote at the Hardball Times recently, baseball operations departments are being overrun with competence, is there just no significant upgrade to be made there? Well, I think there's clearly a difference between, you know, the best GMs and, 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 and those at the bottom, although I think it's closer than, than, than generally people think. But it's pretty much a free market, and, and I think that the baseball owners, um, the fact that Friedman got such a large contract, I think they understand, um, you know, that if you want the best GMs, you're, you're going to have to pay something, and that having a good GM gives you a much better chance of winning uh, I don't think either of us have ever really tried to put a value on it. I know we've seen a few studies on what the numbers are, uh, but I think that the free market and the, the, these owners who, who want to win so badly, I, I think it's sort of reaching its natural level. One thing I, I would add is, and I, I don't have an answer for this because I don't really understand how the, the money actually works, but it, it does strike me that these front offices, although I think Dan and I both believe that you know, there's a tremendous amount of you know work being you know, that goes on in baseball ops now. I do think that the the guy on top is getting the you know not just the lion's share of the credit, but also the lion's share of the money. I, I, they they pay Friedman a lot, but they probably have a lot of people making twenty five thousand dollars a year working for the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the book is called In Pursuit of Penance. Uh, Mark Armour and Dan Levitt have worked together in the past on other books. They have had uh, accomplished careers as baseball writers, as solo artists also, and have been very heavily involved with Sabre. So check out their work. Check out the book. Guys, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. 
All right. So that is it for us this week. You can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Our Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We welcome your ratings and reviews on iTunes, and we hope that you will support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We will be back on Monday.